Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans from The Daily Signal, and guest hosting with me today is Inez Stepman, Senior Policy Analyst at the Independent Women's Forum. Welcome, Inez. Thanks for having me. It's great to be uh, sitting in for Kelsey this week. <laughs> Big shoes to fill. Also joining me today is Romina Bacha, like a robot doing the cha-cha, my colleague at the Heritage Foundation and director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. Excited to be here. On today's Problematic Women, is your favorite band teaming up with Planned Parenthood to push a false narrative? Plus, conservatives win a kind of victory as the College Board drops their planned affirmative action addition to the SAT score, the adversity score. And a new poll shows a gulf of generational disagreement on the most basic things of life, patriotism, God, and what it means to be an American. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. So if you are a problematic woman or just like problematic women or like to march to the beat of your own drum, please consider supporting problematic women by leaving a review or rating on iTunes, encouraging other people to subscribe. It really does make a huge difference for the podcast. Okay, to start us off, Planned Parenthood has launched a new advocacy campaign called Bands Off My Body, where they're teaming up with musicians. So like, get it, like Bands Off My Body, Bands Off My Body. Not that clever, but unfortunately, they've signed 130 bands on the list. So your favorite band is probably on it. According to The Hill, artists on the campaign include Lizzo, Ariana Grande, Lady Gaga, Beck, Billie Eilish, Bon Iver, John Legend, and even Casey Musgraves kind of surprised me. So check out the promo video. This is my body, my life, my voice, my truth, my future, my decisions. When we own our bodies, we are powerful. We are free. When we have control, we thrive. We won't go back. We won't tolerate this assault on our health and our rights. And that means access to safe and legal abortion. Now is the time to unite. Get your bands off my body. According to Billboard, the goal of the Bands Off campaign is to raise awareness about restrictive anti-abortion measures passed in several states over the last year and gather 500,000 signatures on an online petition opposing limits on abortion rights in time for this 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade in January. Planned Parenthood also plans to spread the word at music festivals with the help of supporting musicians. So do you think this is a smart PR move, kind of teaming up with musicians for Planned Parenthood? I don't know about you, but I'm just so sick of hearing what ill-informed celebrities have to say about politics, including when they're on my own side, right? Look, it was fun to watch Kanye pop off in the media, but I mean, does anybody really turn to Kanye for very informed policy discussion? No, I'm really tired of this. And I think a lot of Americans are right. Exactly this kind of ad where you have a series of celebrities with some nice music in the background. They look into the camera and they tell you, you should care about this because I'm a celebrity. <laughs> like, I just I, I don't know. Maybe it's a personal thing, but I, I don't really think that this is going to move the needle in America at all, particularly as we see the right increasingly realizing that some cultural institutions like Hollywood are 99 percent left. They're not going to take what a celebrity says seriously about politics because they realize they're coming from a very, very different place than, you know, the average Republican or even the average American. And I wanted to play that clip because it really just frustrates me the way that the Planned Parenthood always sets up this narrative. They don't want to actually talk about abortion. It's either you support abortion or you hate women. And like this a whole idea that, it, you know, it's my body and, and I get to do what I want. Like n- no conservatives are telling them what they can and can't do with their body. They just can't kill anybody. That's not the only kind of crazy celebrity news we have on Problematic Women this week. 
Taylor Swift had a great night at the VMAs on Monday, taking home awards ranging from Song of the Summer to Song for Good and Power Anthem. But I think the most interesting moment of the night came during her acceptance speech for Music Video of the Year, which she won for You Need to Calm Down. Have you guys ever heard that song? Yeah, it's it's, it's unfortunately kind of catchy. <laughs> <laughs> you need to calm down. In the lyrics, it's supporting the Equality Act, which is a House Democrat sponsored bill that would elevate sexual orientation and gender identity to protected classes in federal anti-discrimination law. And it has lyrics in it such as, why are you mad when you could be glad? Glad spelled like G-L-A-A-D, the pro-gay rights organization. It also has lyrics that say, you need to just take several seats and then try to restore the peace and control your urges to scream about all the people you hate because shade never made anyone less gay which I don't know if it makes much sense. But let's go back to the acceptance speech and hear what Taylor had to say. This is a fan-voted award. So I first want to say thank you to the fans because in this video, several points were made. So you voting for this video means that you want a world where we're all treated equally under the law. At the end of this video, there was a petition, and there still is a petition, for the Equality Act, which basically just says we all deserve equal rights under the law. And I want to thank everyone who signed that petition because it now has half a million signatures, which, which is five times the amount that it would need to warrant a response from the White House. So you can't hear it, but at the end, she's kind of tapping her wrists like it's a watch, indicating that she's waiting on the White House to respond. Well, the White House did go ahead and respond on Tuesday with a statement from Deputy Press Secretary Jed Deere, according to CNN Entertainment. Quote, the Trump administration absolutely opposes discrimination of any kind and supports the equal treatment of all. However, the House passed bill in its current form is filled with poison pills that threaten it to undermine parental and conscious rights. Deere said when asked about Swift's comments, just like with the Planned Parenthood stuff, you know, you either you're either a hater or you support far left policies. Right. I mean, so let's talk a little bit about the Equality Act. uh, And I actually will throw in here the Equal Rights Act, which is also thrown around in a lot of these discussions. Equal Rights Act pertains to women. It's a constitutional amendment. And uh, these things like they don't sound like anything that anyone would want to be against, right? Um, Who wants to be against equality? But they have some really disturbing consequences. So for example, we're talking about the Equality Act. Um, Canada actually has something very similar to the Equality Act, which would be elevating gender identity to um, federal civil rights law, right? Uh, Saying that it would be impossible to discriminate or illegal to discriminate on the basis of gender identity. For starters, that would mean that all public facilities would cease to be allowed to have male and female restrooms. We're including here public schools, locker rooms. I mean, um, they're, they're, that's a, a pretty radical consequence for something that sounds really nice on paper. But actually, one step further in Canada, we've seen in countries where laws like this have been implemented. There's and I'm sure a lot of you have heard of this controversy. There's um, a person named Jessica Yaniv over in Canada who is going around to women's salons um, and she's requesting a nether regions wax. Now, 
I say she, but Jessica Geneve is, in fact, a biological male with biological male parts. So in Canada, there are a series of human rights cases being kicked up through the courts based on whether or not a woman, a waxer, has the right to refuse to touch male genitalia. So, I mean, this is the kind of extreme thing that the Equality Act could bring to the United States. So it sounds very gauzy, very nice. Like, yes, we want, of course, we want to treat people equally. Of course, we don't want people to be discriminated against. But that's an extremely radical solution. And and as the White House statement says, will undermine conscience rights, will undermine the ability of people to to live out not even just their faiths, but their common sense or how they see the reality of the world when it as it pertains to biological men and biological women. So, I mean, I, I think you're you're totally right, uh, Lauren. It's always framed as you're in favor of these radical left policies or you're a hater or a bigot or you don't like women or you don't like people who are different from you or however else they want to put it. But then when you actually start bringing out some of these policies, there are real consequences here that are definitely worth having a discussion about as a society. I just want to share a quick story that I thought is fitting and funny, perhaps. In April, I was in Stockholm, Sweden, and I went to a museum where there were two bathrooms next to each other that clearly at one point had been male and female bathrooms, but now were both unisex bathrooms. And I sat outside for a little while. It was hilarious just watching people trying to figure out which bathroom to use. And they were they were self-selecting. Like women would go into the bathroom where they just saw women walk into and they would avoid the one where they just saw a guy walk into. And guy was, guys would pretty much do the same thing. So despite the best intentions, um, there's still a preference for people to at least use the facilities with their own gender. Oh, and this is something actually the suffragettes fought for, right? So early um, women's rights activists fought for segregated restrooms in public because then the facilities were functionally all male in public spaces. And part of what the response from from folks back then was basically, you know, if you're outside of the house and in public, it's a man's world and you're going to have to use the bathroom with us. And that, so that was actually part of women's rights. Initially, the push for women's rights is the, the right to actually access sex segregated facilities for your own comfort. There is a real tension here, I think, between these attempts to accommodate people who feel they're transgender and women's safety and spaces for women only to change, to be separated from men. And especially when we're talking about kids, right? Because if if the Equality Act were to pass, public schools in America would not be able to prevent boys from going into the girls' locker room. There are a lot of parents in this country who would rightfully be disturbed to hear that their, I don't know, 11-year-old girl is changing and stripping down in a locker room next to a biological boy and seeing biological boy parts. This is this is something that parents are rightfully up in arms about when it was initially implemented under the Obama administration um, in some public schools. And, and so, again, sounds very gauzy and nice, but what does it actually mean in practice? And I, I don't see Taylor Swift talking about that, by the way. And it means... Biological men can participate in women's sports. It means that if a parent decides to not allow their child to use puberty blockers, they would be breaking the law because they're violating their rights. Uh, This this one bill has so many overarching effects on society. And, yeah, it's great to say, like, I want equality, but it doesn't promote equality. And I just think of all of Taylor Swift's fans who they're just hearing these good things and they go along with it and they don't understand these consequences. Well, and conservatives don't understand 
I think we're starting to, but um, for a long time, I think conservatives focused on our political victories, right? The, the Reagan era victories, we, we cut taxes, we won the Cold War, right? And and we focus on those political victories. But Reagan himself said in his farewell speech, right, um, traditionally presidents give warnings. And, and his warning was exactly this. He said, we have to be careful about the fact that our cultural institutions are slipping away, that we're no longer teaching an informed patriotism in our schools, which we'll get to later in this program, <laughs> that we're we're no longer making movies in Hollywood that promote patriotism, that promote a, a positive view of America and that help bring us together, give us some kind of common feeling as common citizens. And and that doesn't mean that, obviously, Reagan was not suggesting that the government take over Hollywood and tell them what movies to make. But he was noting that cultural institutions matter. The fact that Taylor Swift is out there uh, promoting the Equality Act, there are a lot of fans who are going to listen to Taylor Swift and they're never going to have the conversation that we're having, right, about the consequences of this act. But they're going to be in favor of it. They're going to call the representatives and and try to to push to have it passed based on a very top level and and I would argue misleading understanding that some celebrity is is um, feeding to them. So, I mean, I, these cultural things do matter. And I'm glad that conservatives are finally waking up to the fact that, yes, we have to talk about this. We have to counter these narratives that are out there in the broader culture. It's not just policy and bills on Capitol Hill that matters. These kind of cultural institutions, they matter, too. And I'm so grateful for our listeners, uh, not only when they give us five star reviews, but also (laughs) we need your help to go and be having these conversations because of all your friends here are Taylor Swift, just like Inez mentioned, that they're going to believe it. But you can stop that narrative and, and don't be that person and just, you know, as soon as Taylor Swift comes up, just talk about how terrible she is. But have thoughtful conversations and kind of challenge your friends on their beliefs and, and have them justify it. And not only will it a help you think through what you really believe, maybe they won't change their mind that minute. But in a week or two weeks, it'll kind of hit them like, oh, wow, this this is really big. This isn't just I'm going to feel good today and we're going to you know, have this really great music video and you're being too loud, but like really make a difference. Finally, in celebrity news, billionaire David Cook passed away last week at the age of 79. He was known as a libertarian philanthropist and political activist who contributed over $1.3 billion to public policy institutes, medical organizations, cultural institutions, and more. So you think when someone who spent so much of his life working for what he thought was a better America, donating money to so many different types of charities, both political and non-political, we would be able to put aside politics and take a moment to really honor this man's life. Nope. Comedian Bill Maher said on his show right after he died, expletive that starts with the letter F, him, I'm glad that he's dead. Comedian Michael Ian Black said in a tweet, in lieu of flowers, the family of David Koch requests that Mourner simply purchase a Republican politician, obviously referencing the amount of money that the Koch spent in politics. And actor George Takei said in a tweet, no person should be able to use his billions to influence politics. So many of our problems stem from huge sums of money being funneled to campaigns. Let us take the passing of one of the Koch brothers as a moment to reflect on the terrible impact such money has on our nation. What do you guys think? Is it right to politicize his death right away? I personally am mourning the death of David Koch. I think he has done tremendous things for the liberty movement, for America. He's well known for donating to cancer research, hospitals, funding the culture and arts. Koch Industries is a very successful private company. They have an extremely good environmental record. They keep winning awards by the Environmental Protection Agency. And so much of what I saw just after his passing 
make me really sad and angry because there was a lot of misinformation and there was a lot of hate out there. But it also gives others the opportunity to set the record straight and talk about really all the good that David Koch has done. So maybe I'll be in the minority here uh, for this problematic women discussion. Um, I don't really mind comedians ripping on David Koch, um, especially somebody like Bill Maher, who has made a career out of saying politically incorrect things at inopportune times. And, you know, I'll say this for Bill Maher, like unlike a lot of his fellows on the left, he actually believes in free speech consistently um, and fights for free speech. And and look, that like that's his brand of comedy. Not everyone has to enjoy it, but that's kind of his brand. It actually disturbed me more to see, quote unquote, serious journalists taking taking a hack at David Koch rather than writing a, you know, balanced um, obit for him, um, a balanced obituary you saw all these obituaries kind of really denigrating his work. And and as you said, Romina, if they didn't like his political work, fine. The guy donated, you know, millions and millions of dollars to cancer research. I mean, most of the institutions for the arts in New York are funded by David Koch, including the Lincoln Center. He was a, a big, a big fan of, of uh, paleontology and dinosaurs. So a lot of the natural history museums and cities around the country have had a lot of money from David Koch, money that, as you point out, Romina, he and his company made um, in the free market, honestly, not by taking it from other people. And he could have sat on that money, but he decided to give back and donate to so many charitable institutions. And it does really show where you can't you can't disagree with the left about anything. Right. You are you are canceled if you disagree with the left about anything, because David Koch was not a Trump Republican, for example. They they didn't spend their money trying to elect Trump himself, and they were also very much in favor of free immigration, open borders, a number of libertarian priorities that were absolutely at odds with the the current Republican Party. Uh, but they believed in free markets, and that was enough to you know sort of make the left really dump on the guy directly after he died. They they could have used that opportunity to to, to highlight some of the work he had done that actually agreed with them. But uh, th- there's really this culture out there on the left that I think is damaging, where it's. If you disagree on anything and to loop it back to Bill Maher, I mean, Bill Maher is a victim of this himself, right? If, if Bill Maher disagrees with the mainstream left on free speech or on the behavior of Islamic countries, for example, he, he is one of those folks who brings up the fact that the incredible illiberalism in um, in Islamic countries, he gets a lot of flack from the left for doing so. So I just think that the larger problem here is our inability to actually sit down and, and have conversations. We definitely silo people into their tribes when we can't have a civil discussion, when merely holding one bad opinion is cancel worthy. I think that's that's a really dangerous precedent. And, and David Koch is far from the first victim of this, but and he won't be the last, I think. All right. With that, I'm going to transfer real quick to a, a little ad read here. Each week, my employer, Independent Women's Forum, has the She Thinks podcast, which brings you fresh, relevant content in a fun way without the politically correct nonsense. On She Thinks, substance and style supersede political spin. Led by my charismatic colleague, Beverly Halberg, um, the She Thinks podcast features some of the country's top women conservative leaders and independent thinkers. Independent Women's Forum is known for championing women's rights to be heard and respected without the crutch of female victimhood espoused by the mainstream media special interests, and the Hollywood elite. Check out what all the buzz is about by subscribing to the She Thinks podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit IWF.org. If you enjoy problematic women, uh, I think that you'll definitely enjoy Beverly Halberg and She Thinks from IWF. 
some good news this week. The College Board, the uh, the company that runs the SAT and the AP tests, among many, many other testing opportunities, has decided to not to move forward with including diversity scores as part of SAT testing. So according to the Wall Street Journal, the original tool called the Environmental Context Dashboard combined about 15 socioeconomic metrics from a student's high school and neighborhood to create something college admissions officers called an adversity score. However, unfortunately, they're not totally abandoning the idea of ranking people by their racial and economic backgrounds. The Wall Street Journal article also mentioned that the new system um, is being developed called Landscape that is designed to help colleges compare an applicant's test scores to those of other students in their high school and beyond. It also aims to give a picture of the quality of the school and relative wealth and stability of the neighborhood. So, look, colleges already take into account where applicants went to school, any adversity they might have experienced in their lives. That's what college essays are for. This is definitely something that Every admissions board takes into account. They know that the opportunities are not exactly the same um, in downtown Detroit as they are in, um, you know, ritzy suburb of the Bay Area. They're, they're, They're aware of that inequality and they take into account. But I don't know, adding this in did raise a huge backlash, right? You are literally ranking people on a test by racial and socioeconomic qualities and that I mean, that really seemed to be contrary to treating people equally, right, to a meritocratic system that doesn't take into account background, that doesn't take into account all the things that maybe we ought not to be paying attention to exactly in a meritocratic system, right? What do you think about this? Lauren, how do you think that we can take into account the totality of a student's experience that might genuinely reflect, right, for example, something like not having AP classes available in the high school that they were zoned to attend. How do we take into account those factors in a fair way, but not reduce it to sort of a bean counting score like the SAT proposed with its adversity model? Well, I don't even know if it's the college board's place to be kind of standardizing this. I think it should be up to each individual college to be deciding this. And I think essay questions are really great. Tell us how you were raised. Tell us actual adversity that you've had to overcome. And that way students can be honest and, and tell these personal stories. And, and it's not a number. It's not a location. It's it's that student. Schools are already doing this. Um, there aren't a lot of universities left that are taking pure SAT score added to the GPA. Um, and part of that is for very real reasons, right? Um, we don't know. Uh, oftentimes in college admission boards don't know what a 4.0 means in one school versus a 4.0 in another school, right? So California, for example, has this policy where the top 10% of graduates of all public high schools are eligible to, they, they must be accepted at one of the UC system schools. Uh, and that's an attempt to balance those things. And I'm, I'm not saying it's the best way to do it, but it's an attempt to balance those things to say that, you know what, being at the top 10% of your school whether that what that looks like in different um, neighborhoods might look totally different, but that is a measure of of studiousness, of hard work, of um, you know academic achievement, and so that I think is a way. I, again, I don't really want to fully endorse those. There are problems with with the California plan, but it is one way to look at some of these factors that go into you know whether or not somebody had the same opportunities to produce the kind of scores uh, that somebody else might have. But again, as you said, I mean, colleges are already looking at this. And in fact, I would argue they're looking at it too much. There there have been um, a lot of states have passed, including California, have passed 
laws preventing their public universities and their private universities from taking race into account. Uh, because that's what this boils down to, unfortunately. It's all fun and games, and we can have this very nuanced discussion about what factors go into producing a student's academic record. But at the end of the day, race is a really blunt tool for that, right? It's not the case that all black students had disadvantaged backgrounds, right, and all white students had um, – you know, completely easy, uh, great school on the corner sort of experiences. And and that's why this does have to be more of an individual thing, in my opinion. This really has to be part of the admissions process of getting to know a student and seeing how they'll fit into the student body and, and um, what kind of academic record. Let's talk for a minute about affirmative action. We've been talking about the, this in a sort of nuanced way, but is affirmative action just a really blunt tool or is it necessary as um, Sandra Day O'Connor, the late Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said, it's necessary for a little while um, in order to correct for the discrimination of the past, the very real discrimination of the past? What do you guys think? Well, I think it finds just a new group to discriminate against. I mean, Asian Americans are the, the people who they are a minority, but they're hurt the most. They have the highest test score. So their students have the hardest time getting into these colleges. I think people should be surrounded by diversity, whether that's diverse opinions, diverse cultures. But I think forced diversity never works. Affirmative action, while having kind of good intentions behind it, just can just passes the buck on racism and racial profiling. Um, and there's some numbers to back that up, right? So um, we have numbers in uh, in some states where you have before and after the state banned affirmative action. And you do see numbers of African-American students slip a little bit. But I- interestingly, for example, in the UC system, you actually saw numbers at, for example, UC Berkeley slip a little bit, but numbers at um, other universities in the, the middle tier of the UC system re- rise up, right, suggesting that there was maybe a better academic match going on. But actually, the biggest sea change in the numbers um, that is is visible before and after getting rid of affirmative action is, in fact, in the numbers of Asian students. Um, it's not actually the, the numbers of white students held fairly steady. So this is not a matter of sort of um, privileged white people uh, taking the spots of disadvantaged black people. In fact, often what's what's happening is a lot of those spots um, that are being opened up are going to first generation Asian Americans um, where they have a culture. A lot of these, depending on what country, and there's a lot of obviously there's a lot of cultural variation. Um, but there is this this culture of really studying, working hard. I mean, I know that um, in in the past, uh, Jewish families had a similar thing. There was a quota instituted because so many Jewish families were sending their kids to universities. They didn't want to have such a high level of Jewish students at the university, so they had a hard cap. There was a certain number of slots for um, Jewish students and no more. Affirmative action actually has we've seen in the numbers does a similar kind of hard cap on on Asian enrollment in elite universities. So you see that the Asian enrollment in these universities is climbing over time. Affirmative action gets implemented and it kind of levels off and it stays at a steady rate when before it had been climbing up. And this is actually the subject of a, a lawsuit uh, that there is there are Asian students who did not get in to Harvard and they are suing Harvard, saying that their spots by all meritocratic tactics and admission tactics were taken by other people because of affirmative action. So this is actually something that is going to play out in the courts. It'll be really interesting to see what happens there. All right. Well, we will keep you updated with that, but we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, I think it will be my favorite segment of this entire show. 
We're going to crown our problematic woman of the week and hint she is sitting in the room with us. But before we do take a break, I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts. And if you're like me and sometimes get overwhelmed by this 24 to 7 news cycle, one of the best ways to kind of keep up with it is the Daily Signal podcast. It's every day. It brings you the top news of the day, co-hosted by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. They interview lawmakers, authors, Heritage Foundation experts like Romina and others on the most policy debates in America today. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news and in the know, make sure you check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. Well, now on to one of the best parts of our show. We are going to crown our problematic woman of the week, and it is Romina Bacha. <laughs> Romina, can you let us know why we're crowning you problematic woman of the week? You know, I maybe, maybe. Is it because I became a U.S. citizen ding, on ding, Saturday? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Hugh Lee Greenwood's proud to be an American. Yes, indeed. I'm I'm really proud to be an American because um, I've, I've lived in this country for over 15 years. So I took a really long time deciding on this. And I'm so happy uh, now that it's done. And um, yeah, it was, an, it was a fantastic ceremony. I got to swear the oath. We, um, we pledged allegiance to the flag. We sang the anthem. It was a great day. Can you we're going to get into kind of what it means to be an American, but very quickly, can you kind of talk about what the process of becoming a citizen actually is? Yeah. So it's different, you know, for for everybody, depending on how they came here. I initially came on a student exchange visa. Um, I met my the love of my life, my husband of now 13 years. And so after we got married, it took about two years for me to get my uh, permanent uh, residency or green card, if you will. It was actually quite scary because it was very clear that there were some bureaucratic mishaps that were happening at the time. USCIS and that whole process wasn't yet online, so it was all paperwork. And it made me shy away from engaging with them soon again because I I just didn't feel like the process was very smooth or easy. It was rather complicated. But then once I finally had my green card, uh, the initial one was good for two years. Then I had to apply for a permanent green card. That one was good for 10 years. And that just recently expired. So about a year ago in August of 2018, I decided to apply for U.S. citizenship, and now everything's online. It was much easier to do. Um, They had told me the process would be done by um, September of 2019, and we were actually a month early, which I was really surprised by, and I'm glad uh, that it happened that way. I I was worried in January when we had that long government shutdown that that could slow things down, but it didn't seem to have done that. So I'm all done now. Well, welcome, first of all. Welcome, my fellow citizen. Um, We're so glad to have you as one of us. Um, So you have, because you've just chosen to become a citizen, you know, you have a unique perspective on what it means to be an American. Could you maybe tell me how you would answer that question? So for me, becoming American is about joining this country and the idea and the American experiment that uh, in America, the individual reigns supreme, but we're all bound together by common ideals, by common ideas and values that we share as Americans. And those are captured in uh, the Declaration of Independence. And that's that's something I find really powerful. Growing up in Europe, uh, it has a long history of people being subjects of kings and feudal lords and princes. And I think that's really shaped the mindset 
of the European people were still to this day they um, look to their governments for so many services and charity the way you see in America uh, where civil society is so strong and provides um, so many generous contributions to various organizations you don't really see it in the same way in Europe because there's this expectation that government is going to take care of it and that's what I love so much about America it really puts the individual at the center of everything and then as we interact um, in, in our communities we shape civil society and and we fund the organizations and the projects and the programs that uh, we support that we believe in and then we can also hold those actors accountable. And I think that's a, that's an important part also. Becoming an American, I have uh, I now have the same constitutional rights as you all and all Americans do, which I didn't have before. Uh, but most importantly, I also have taken on responsibilities. And those responsibilities are to defend the Constitution and to hold lawmakers accountable so that we can continue this a wonderful American experiment where we can live together as free individuals associating with each other uh, freely and uh, respecting each other and our differences and the diversity that we, we have in this country. And I just want to add one more point, which is this was actually my second naturalization. When I was uh, 13, I was naturalized German because Germany, even though I was born in Germany, they didn't have birthright citizenship at the time. So I was born Italian. I didn't speak Italian. And then uh, 13 years after my birth, I finally was naturalized German. But it's always felt like I was an immigrant and a foreigner wherever I was, even in the country in which I was born. And in America, it's really the first time where I feel like I'm at home. Like anybody can become American. And that's a beautiful thing. It is something that is really, I think... um folks who haven't spent a lot of time outside of the United States don't realize they they really look at America as uniquely, for example, racist or xenophobic, when in reality, America is one of the most, if not the most diverse nation on the planet. And there there has been traditionally this this give and take in America. The the give is we actually do recognize people as Americans. My my um my family, my both my parents immigrated here um, and they speak with heavy accents and, and people notice the accents, but they've never felt anything less than American because people don't treat them as less than American here. And as you said, in Europe, that's just not the case. And a lot of I mean, you can be third generation in a lot of European countries, speak only the language, know only the culture. And still, if your last name is different or if they see that um, you come from a different country, or your family comes from a different country three generations back, uh, the America is actually one of the most welcoming cultures, I think, to people from all over the world. Um, but but you you talked a lot, um, movingly, I might add, about you know what it means to be an American. That because we do come from all over, we have to we have to cleave to these principles and the Declaration of Independence. There has to be something that binds us together. That e pluribus unum, right? Um, there has to be something that binds us together. But increasingly. It seems like there's a deep gulf opening up, not only between the left and the right, but also between generations. So there's a new Wall Street Journal poll that came out a couple of days ago that shows a huge gap between millennials and Gen Zers on the one hand and then older generations on the other uh, on things like the existence of God, um, whether or not patriotism 
as an important quality to have, um, whether or not they want children and then self-fulfillment. These are the the biggest gaps. But for our purposes, uh, I think the most important one is nearly 80 percent of people between the ages of 55 and 91 said being patriotic is important to them. While only 42 percent of millennials and Generation Z or those aged uh, 18 to 38 said the same. Less than half of people our age, we're all in that that um, age range, say that it's important to them to be to be patriotic about this country. And and, you know, look, we all understand that being patriotic doesn't mean we never criticize this country. And in fact, we criticize it and and try to change policies to make it better. But I fear and I wonder if you feel the same way. I fear that we are losing that allegiance to the founding documents, you know, particularly in the light of, for example, the New York Times 1619 project, the um, the increasing academic push on the left to try to not only to acknowledge the black marks of American history, but to place them at the center of our founding and to to put a lie to the ideals that you say you swore allegiance to when you joined this country as a citizen. I mean, how how can we continue when we're from all over the place, what what will we find in common if we can't find commonality in that? I, I do think that is a really important idea to revive, and that is the idea of American exceptionalism. America is truly exceptional in a wonderful way, and it's a beacon of freedom for a people all over the world. Just look at what has been happening in Hong Kong and the protests that have been going on there. And yep. as they were protesting to try and gain more freedom— uh, they they would wave the American flag. And that is so powerful, that idea. And I think it might be really helpful for uh, many Americans to, uh, if, if they need a reminder of what makes America great and why America is so exceptional, um, to try and attend one of these naturalization oath ceremonies. They're open to the public. They're happening all over the country. Anybody can go. And uh, what we what we saw in the room on Saturday, where I was a part of the ceremony, there were 69 individuals from 41 different countries. And I didn't know they were going to do this, but I thought it was really special. They celebrated every country by reading the name of the country. And we went all the way from Argentina to Zimbabwe. And if when they called your country, you would stand up and um, they said, it's OK, you can you can clap, you can celebrate uh, where you are from as we're all uh, joining together here to, to to become Americans here in this room today. And um, I think that maybe some of the 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 criticism we're seeing, especially from young people, is that they're being so inundated, especially from the left about um, um, America in a negative way and not celebrating uh, that heritage and celebrating the values that America has. And I wonder if some of it has to do with uh, especially the left that is becoming more attracted to socialism, recognizing that the American idea, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, they're really incompatible uh, with pro- progressive goals, uh, and especially when we're talking about trying to institute socialism in this country. Um, the founding documents are are very robust uh, against that. They protect individual rights, which in a in in a, in a communist society, in a communal socialist society, um, are not respected. They are trampled, and maybe that has something to do with it. 
uh, I'm I'm very worried about the left's uh, onslaught on uh, on America with with these socialism with these ideas of socialism um, coming from Germany. I met many people from uh, I I was lucky to grow up in Western Germany, but I met very many people from Eastern Germany, and the stories they would tell about what life was like. Um, Really troubling. The one thing I remember so well, maybe because I was really young when I was hearing these, but when they had bananas, when like bananas became available, like people just standing in long lines for hours at the store. And then I think about every time I go to the grocery store here in America in the United States and bananas are like 34 cents. It's just incredible. So, Romina, we're almost out of time, but I just want to ask you, how did you celebrate gaining your citizenship? So the day off, I was really quite overwhelmed with the entire uh, ceremony. So my husband and I took a quiet afternoon. We actually, we drank some beers, we played cornhole, and uh, we made a nice fire, had s'mores, and he made me a lovely dinner of ribs and mashed potatoes. It felt very American. That is very American. Well, uh, as we know, there's a, a push-pull between, um, as you just mentioned, with, with people standing up for their, their home countries and then finally coming together as new Americans. Uh, there's always a push-pull. So we will continue to go to you uh, for German beer advice. Um, but I want to thank you so much for, for being our problematic woman this week and for being our fellow citizen. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, I really feel like we should be congratulating America for gaining Romina. She's so awesome. So that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. It really does make a difference. Have a problematic, great week. podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Associate producer, Samantha Rank. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton. 